Welcome to the Reach the Stars podcast, a collection of conversations with cool people who do cool things. Brought to you by Papercraft Miracles. Each week, we'll bring you inspiring stories of persistence, passion, and purpose. With your host, Jonna Willoughby-Lore. Welcome to the Reach the Stars podcast, everybody. I am your host, John Willoughby Lore. Today, my guest is Kay Reeve. She's an author from the UK, and she's written this book called Brain Unchained, which is shining a torch on depression and lighting the way to emotional awareness in teenagers and young adults, which is like super, super important in today's world, especially in the middle of this pandemic. So welcome to the show, Kay. Thank you for being here. Can you tell everyone a little bit more about you and where you come from? Yes, thank you. I'm so delighted to be here and talking with you. And yes, so I'm from the UK, but I'm in Norfolk, which is on the East Coast. And uh, yes, I've been here for many years. <laughs> Most of my life I've been in Norfolk. Um, so yeah, that's that's me and where I'm from. And uh, it's always amazing to be talking to people all around the world. <laughs> I love it. Cool. So you're in, you're in Norfolk, Virginia right now in the States or are you in the UK? In the UK, Norfolk, UK. It's weird because on the East Coast, there is a city called Norfolk that's in Virginia, um, which is like, I don't know, eight, 10 hours from here. But um, anyway, so tell me a little bit more about you and your journey and and why you decided to write this book in the first place and, and kind of give everyone a little bit more of your background. Yeah, absolutely. And it all sort of... It goes back a really long way, about 20, 25, 26 years, to be honest. It's it's um, sort of not a lifelong story for me, but a lifelong story for my son. And from a very young age, he was a very tearful baby. He was <clears throat> always seemed to be a bit troubled as a toddler. Primary school, he didn't fit in very well. He, you know, he struggled to connect with the lessons. And by the time he was eight, he was then diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also in the same year that he first attempted to commit suicide. And it was a, a very difficult day for me as well as him. And I just didn't know how to cope with it. And then over the following 12 years, he was suicidal on and off, suffered a lot of chronic depression. We tried all the, the therapies. We we tried physical exercise. We tried group support. We tried dietary changes. You know, we every, if we could find a way to try and help him, we did. And it just seemed like some things gave him a bit of temporary reprieve. And it it was just like rescuing somebody out of the water just for him to turn around and dive back in time after time after time. And so by the time he was about 19, I'd already got to a point where I don't want other people to have to get to, but I'd already got to a point where I'd put him in a hostel because I I just didn't know how how else to cope with him. Mm -hmm. And he still went downhill even more. And I needed a way to save my son. I knew he was in there, but I just couldn't find him. And it was just like this zombie of a teenager walking around that just, he didn't know what day of the week it was. Uh, he was hallucinating. And he, he was sort of almost on the point of being psychotic. And I, I was so close to actually picking the phone up and admitting him for help. And we, we tried to get help at times. Don't get me wrong. There was a time I'd got him all the way to a psychologist and it took me months to get him to this appointment. And he, he just turns up on a good day and said, oh, yeah, mum's making it all up. There's nothing wrong. And they just ticked us off, dismissed us, and we couldn't get any more appointments. So for the next five years after that, I was then still left dealing with his depression. And so in the end, it was, like, oh, my God, how can I teach my son to manage his own emotions? 
And with the added complication of the Asperger's, he was a visual learner. So we needed to see things to understand him, understand them. So how was I supposed to teach him what I couldn't show him? And that's where the, the book kind of stemmed from when he was about 19, was I really started to question emotions in terms of colour. And I started to write and draw things in terms of colour. And he changed so rapidly from there that I was just so pleased. I no longer had to worry about him being suicidal. But then I realised that there was this particular pattern that exists across the whole globe in how every human being uses the emotional cycle. Now, very much like time is invisible, but we see it by looking at a clock or a watch. Mm -hmm. How could I teach him emotions? But I still, I still needed a way for him to see him. And I saw this pattern and I learned to draw it so that he could see it. And then I was like, wow. I've done this and it was helping him. It was helping friends. It helped me. It helped other family. And I was like, wow, I've done something nobody else has done. <laughs> you know, we've put rockets on the moon mm. and, you know, science is phenomenal, politics, religion, every, you know, everything in the world has got all these strategies for coping, but nobody had ever drawn the emotional cycle. And so from there, I spent the last six years, I kept developing and developing this whole strategy around emotional awareness um, until in December this, this yeah, in December 2020, I actually published the book. So it's been a long, long time coming, but it's on my head feels so free now. It's all out in the on paper. <laughs> that is so amazing. I wish that um, anyone who's listening to this could could see all the emotion in your face when you're talking about um coming up with this, this way to communicate with your son and help him communicate with the world and, and how that just freed everything up by taking the time to figure out how he learns best and, and how people who are, who have brains that work like his learn best. And I just think that's so, so important. So congratulations for doing that. That's awesome. <laughs> Game changer. Um, Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit more about the emotional cycle that you kind of figured out how to draw and and how does it work uh, yes it's it's looks quite simplistic when you look at the diagram itself it's like just imagine a circle and then it's divided into four quadrants but with a sort of a wedge at the top a wedge at the bottom and then there's a wedge on the left and right so you sort of draw across through a circle and there's these four quadrants um, that was the first part of it and then the top part we talk all about happy emotions being about being on high or on top of the world and when you think about the sun, the sun is up in the sky and everything we talk about, about happiness, is, is a high frequency emotion or a high energy emotion. So mm. that is when I realised that everything about high emotion, and happiness and joy and excitement, all of that fits in that top part of the cycle. Whereas when we talk about depression, we talk about it in terms of pits, rock bottom, stuck in a rut, being in darkness. So that became the black, which is the bottom quadrant of the cycle. So it's very um, easy to sort of then teach a teenager or a young, you know, anybody, to be honest, anybody, start. you start getting this 
point of view able to teach them? Well, if you're not working towards something positive, you will be going into the negative. So it's about being able to teach them in this dynamic cycle. And then in between that, on the left and right, we've got red and blue, which is the sadness and the anger. And, and I also like to reflect to them in terms of thoughts and actions. Because, and, and again, it's everything that we say, do, think, feel, and also our tone of voice, our body language. And as I studied and studied emotions, and that, that wasn't like going to university to study, I, I literally decided to like pay attention to everything going on around me and start to watch what happens in, in work colleagues, in family, the telly, radio and songs, newspapers, books I read, YouTube, hundreds of hours of YouTube videos. And I'm probably the only person that's watched all eight seasons of Game of Thrones just to study the emotions. <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> and it all came back that there was this pattern in how we talk about them in terms of high and low moods, fight, flight, and freeze. Mm -hmm. And then this quadrant has got a small orange circle in the middle and an orange band around the outside. And for Jana's purpose, I will show her this on screen so she knows what I'm talking about. So this um, emotional cycle has got this small orange center and the orange represents change. Because I realized when I was teaching my son about different emotions, it's okay to say, okay, so you have this emotion. How does that feel? What, you know, let's have a look at all the dynamics of that for him and look at each emotion and the subtleties of them, because there's a lot of subtleties in there as well. This is this just the core starting point. But then it was okay. So why do we change between emotions? That was my next question. And started to realize we only change between emotions because something changed. Mm -hmm. And that's either something internal, which is then represented by the internal circle on the, on the diagram, or something external in the outside world, which is represented by that orange band around the outside. So that, in essence, is the entire diagram. But I've turned it into an entire book as well, because <laughs> there's a lot to teach around it. But everything in the book fits somewhere in that diagram. And that was the most important thing. We're just finding that strategy for helping him to, to understand the dynamics so that when he's in a particular mindset, he can say, okay, now I know I'm here. I'm in the red, I'm in the blue, I'm in the black and the yellow, whatever. But also know where he wants to be emotionally. Does he want to be motivated? Does he want to be calm? Does he want to be excited? So it's about looking at where he is, where he wants to be, what changed and what changes he needs to make to take that to the place where he wants to be emotionally mm -hmm. so it was just this whole strategy so it's taken me six years to develop it entirely in my head that was a lot of information in my head for a long time but <laughs> um but yeah and it, it was just a case of once I got it I had this, this real light bulb moment as well one day where I was having a coffee with my son in town but well before lockdown this is about five years ago and I just got to the point where he was out of suicidal depression and he was starting to really grasp life again. And a friend of his just walked in and sat down with us and then said, I've realised that hanging around with Matt makes me a better person. <laughs> it was like, oh, my goodness, he's been using it to help friends or, you know, just by changing how he thinks he's had a positive impact on people around him, even if he hasn't taught them. I thought, wow. That was my light bulb moment where I needed to do something with it. So, and it's just all grown from there, really. So, this is so awesome. I, first of all, I can't wait to get this book and and read it um, because my kids are not 
my kids are really little right now. They're five or just about to be six and, and three. So, um, I think having this as like a, a good framework to start working with them now yeah. would be so great because, you know, doing virtual school with a five-year-old is certainly not my favorite thing and it's not his favorite thing. Um, and it's been really difficult where it's just, I I'm realizing just now this year, I don't know why it took me so long, um, that I'm not officially diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure that I have ADHD and I've had it my whole entire life. And I started reading more about it and I was like, Oh my God, that makes so much sense. No wonder I act the way that I do in, in certain situations. Um, and I was just reading more about it recently that you can be emotionally hyperactive in the way that other people assume hyperactivity is just running around like a crazy person. I'm like, my emotions are running around like a crazy person. So I didn't even know that was the thing until like earlier this week. And I was like, Oh my God, I feel seen. Like That's me. Um, no wonder that almost every person that I have met and interacted with has at one point in their lives said, wow, you're really intense. Like, you're a lot. Uh, I you. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Have you ever done, um, I talk about this a lot on the show a lot. Have you ever done the Enneagram personality? No, I haven't. Yes. No. Um, it's really interesting because it, it's, it divides up the, the personality types into nine different personality types. And each one has characteristics of how they behave when they're in a healthy mindset and when they're like doing okay. And then behaviors they might go to if they're not in a good place and of, um, they're all numbered. So I'm a seven, which is called the enthusiast. And I'm like very easily excited by new things and new ideas and interacting with new people. And, um, typically if, if sevens are being really healthy, they are using this excitability to get other people excited and come up with lots of ideas and stuff like that. Um, they're very good at brainstorming and, and being passionate about what they're doing. And, um, but when sevens are kind of leaning off toward the not quite so healthy zone, um, will do anything to avoid pain, fear, loss in general. And so if things are not going great, we are, we tend to start new plans and new ideas and just say, forget that thing I was dealing with. I don't want to deal with that problem from the past. Let's just look forward and start something new and like never deal with that at all and run away from the pain and the fear and, and whatever it is. Um, and take on more projects to make yourself busier. So you can't ever just be sitting around thinking about how things are terrible or whatever. And I, I've just noticed that 2020 in, in some ways for me was like, oh, that's really scary. Let's start all this new stuff. Um, and it made me kind of throw myself into my work. Like other people would probably say as a crazy person, but I, it was so like, it was like this fertile ground of newness and finding hope in the craziness. And so it was hard for me to be like, is this, a, is this me behaving good? Or is this me behaving like reacting to the stress or a little bit of both? So I've been kind of navigating all of that and uh, trying to figure out the best way to start explaining some of this world we're in to my little kids. And this book sounds oh. really helpful. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to work out if you're talking about you or me here, because I don't think there's much difference. <laughs> 
And yeah. I think you're saying about anything to avoid that pain and fear. And I think that was a huge part of why I did this, because I knew the pain and fear that I would, you know, that I, I knew the fear that I suffered every day with my son being suicidal um, or the risk of him hurting somebody when he was in, in a really angry, depressed, depressive state and he had an outburst. And when you get a 19 year old having an outburst, it's not like having a two year old tantrum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, just a, t- a temper tantrum on hype, you know. So, um, it was that fear of what could go wrong in his life or end up being behind bars or in a wooden box, you know, and every day I feared whether or not I'd get that phone call or also hoped that I'd get to speak to him again for another day. And it was was that that drove me to say, well, I didn't want that pain of losing him. And I, I did fear that I was losing him in the sense that, like I said, he was his body was there, but somehow his personality was just fading away until there was just a ghost of him left. Um, but it, it was just about finding that. And that's the other thing that you, you mentioned just before we came on as well about um, hereditary things mm-hmm. and, and how things pass down through the generations. And there's this thing in my family known as a stubborn streak. My family is well known for being stubborn <laughs> and it's not usually used in a positive term. But I figured that if I'm going to be stubborn, I might also use it the right way and make sure I find a solution. <laughs> So you know, all those things you're saying, yeah, that's actually what's driven me rather than holding me back. Um, but yeah, I, d- I didn't want to lose my son. And I just kept fighting and fighting until I found a way. So. I just think that's so beautiful that in, in in the situation where so many parents are in that position where their kids, you know, have had a hard time and they, you know, weren't given this vast emotional language. And, you know, there's some people that, emotional language comes really easily to them. And I was super, super fortunate to have the mother that I had. And she was a poet and had had learned how to read and was reading, you know, large books, like the Bible, read the whole Bible by the time she was four years old. Um, mm. It's just like this wild, totally crazy, brilliant, brilliant little tiny person. And she, after, when I was a kid, she was always trying to figure out how I was feeling and then telling me all of these words I could use to describe whatever that was. So whenever I was, you know, upset about something, she'd be like, Oh, are you sad? Are you melancholy? Are you? And she would like kind of say, Oh, this feels like this. And she would kind of compare it, you know, in her own poetic language to other adjectives or feelings or textures or colors. And like gave me this really amazing gift to have, a way to describe emotions that so many people could never name even as adults. And it, in, in a lot of ways has been amazing for me in my life to have that poetic language that even from five years old, like that was my, that's my main language. When I'm upset, I write poems and oh, I, can like, I can like channel whatever that is and put it out in words in a way that makes those emotions tangible to other people too. When they read it, they're like, Oh, I didn't know. Like I felt that feeling before and I didn't know what to call that. And so I'm just really blessed that I've had that, but it makes it really frustrating for me as a person to interact with people who don't have that at all, because I'm like, what do you mean? You don't know what this feels like, you know, or you don't know how to tell me what that is. And I, I, growing up a lot, my dad is one of those people that I think really needs your book. Um, because his parents didn't give him any emotional language. And in his world, 
for the most part, as far as I can tell, uh, as his kid, um, that fear, anger, and sadness are all the same emotion to him. He's like, those are the, those are the bad. I don't want those. And he can't really like differentiate, you know, which one is which uh, and tends to have the same reaction to anything that's not awesome. And yeah, it's, but what you're saying about your mum, though, is so beautiful that she's had those conversations with you. And actually, Matthew would be proud of that, my son, because he loves writing poetry, too. Um, and it was an amazing thing. He could write amazing poetry. He even wrote novels but he couldn't have a conversation about emotions um, for a long, long time. He, because of the Asperger, he struggled to connect in real life. Um, but you're saying about like fear, anger, depression, all being just bad, bad emotions. And it, that's why it's so important to, to introduce this to people now. I do actually have um, uh, somebody who has struggled with, with his upbringing and then because he hadn't been given that emotional language, it made it difficult when he was a father and created a broken family. And now as a grandfather, he's now reading my book and trying to like catch up on all those missed emotions so that he has some hope of still potentially reconnecting the family. So, it, you know, although this is written for teenagers and young adults, you're so right. If that's been missing, that that passes down those generations again. I've, I've forgotten where I'm going now. Sorry. <laughs> I was saying about Matthew with his books. I mean, Craig, he could write all sorts. And I've just lost the plot. I'm sorry, I do this now and again. <laughs> that tells so much in my head. ADHD person, right? There we go. What people won't see is when you were describing that, I'm sitting here on camera pointing to me saying, yes, that's me too. <laughs> my head is crazy <laughs> yeah trying to just trying to keep up with it you know it's it's one of those things that for me um I think that based on having that language for myself as a kid it helped me to deal with the fact that I was ADHD and not have to like be medicated um not that there's anything wrong with anyone being medicated for anything you medicate however you want um but I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't medicated as a kid and that it, I was allowed to just kind of run wild in my wild, crazy mind and my wild, very vast galaxy of internal emotions and, and um, that I got to have this outlet of writing poems about all of these deep imaginary worlds that I live in inside my head, <laughs> you know? So it was, it's yeah. cool to have those. Um, and it's been really interesting to meeting all these different people from all around the world and interviewing them for this, this podcast. And it's been so, I mean, I really love, um, serendipity and like, as I call it, it's like my religion is weird shit. I believe in weird shit. There's weird shit out there. I can't explain it, but it. it happens to me all the time and I love it. And yes. so many times on this podcast, a conversation I will have had on the show before that isn't even released. Like you don't know who I just talked to on the last episode, but there's so many little themes like that, that just like, mm. because I talk to them, it's kind of in my mind and then it like brings it back in. And it, like all of that energy just like combines together to kind of yeah. make all of the episodes of this show, like flow together. Like you're having a conversation with the person I talked to and they're having conversation with the person I talked to before. And that it's like making this much bigger, headier conversation that's going out into the world. Um, hopefully with the, with the goal of affecting positive change in some yes. way across the world. Yeah. Like, a butterfly effect. like I, 
oh, there is nothing else for me than like being able to change somebody's whole life in an instant. And like, I, I am kind of obsessed with kind of intentionally crafting that moment as much as possible. Um, and just putting it out there that anything that you say, if you put the right intention on it could be the thing that totally changes the way that somebody thinks forever. Like I, I was, I was looking at this Instagram post this morning and this beautiful young mother, she's got like three kids. She's, she's one of those Instagram influencers. Um, and so she does a lot of like these cute videos of her with her family and she gets free clothes and they get to like wear the clothes and, you know, get affiliate discounts and whatever. It's like this whole world that I'm like figuring out. Um, but I just, I'm inspired by them and I like watching her thing. And she put this video up yesterday and she's like, here's me practicing saying how old I am. And she's like, I'm like, and she said she's 25. And I was like, Oh God, to be 25 again. You know, it's like, I'm almost 40. Yeah, finally. <laughs> and, um, it, it just immediately, I was looking through all the comments and there was all these young women who were all just like, Oh man, can't believe I'm so old. I'm 27 or I'm 35 or whatever, you know? And, and I decided that the comment I was going to put on this thread was don't regret growing older. Cause it's a privilege denied to many. And I was like, I'm real happy to be here and to be almost 39. Like, hell yeah. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot of people who are not. <laughs> Actually, funny you say that because um, the older we get, the wiser we're supposed to get. And this is one of the amazing things now to see how much wisdom my son has still in his 20s. Considering where he was to now being a father <laughs> with another baby on the way. <laughs> um, I've actually just seen the news this morning that it's going to be another little granddaughter. So wow. I'm really excited today to hear that. Um, but he's been an absolutely brilliant dad. But he's also, he had a job that he kept down for four years. And then this year he'd had a change of job. And on a three month job trial, he was already recognized for being a conscientious, productive and supportive worker and given a pay rise within eight weeks. And compared to where I was saying a little while ago about where my son was six years ago, that is, is way better than anything I could have hoped for him back then. And, you know, I wanted him to be able to get out there and access the world and get a job. But he's just done so well since then. So the amazing thing is, is with, with the book, it's like taking all of that wisdom that I've gained over my lifetime and literally putting it in one book. So you don't have to spend all those years doing it on your own. It's here, learn it, <laughs> get the book, learn it. It saves you so much time. And that's what I was coming back to what you said earlier about the, the, the bad and good emotions. A good way I like to think of it, and this strategy I've got in the book, is about learning emotional awareness from that the diagram, which teaches you the dynamics of emotions. Mm -hmm. So it's this visual concept. And then when I was saying about the change, the second part of the book is all about understanding change and that there are actually only five changes in the whole world you can face. And when we can chunk life into those five changes, it gives everybody a really solid starting premise for sorting out any issue <laughs> and starting to have a conversation about it. And then the third part of the book goes into root causes. And the way I like to explain this, you imagine you're driving your car. This is everything's going well emotionally, you're driving a car, nice, smooth ride. And then it starts to feel a bit off. Your steering's a bit funny. And if you ignore that and just keep going, it's not going to solve anything. 
And that's people who get a bit emotionally out of sync, but they ignore it and they just keep going. But if you actually pull over and you say, okay, what's caused this? And you look at the changes, this is the second stage, you might have a flat tire and that's just causing it to feel strange. But having a flat tire doesn't resolve having a flat tire, knowing about it. It only resolves it if you do something about it. Mm -hmm. If you can fix your own flat tire or change a spare wheel, brilliant. If not, do you just stand there on the side of the road forever or do you call the tow truck? (laughs) You call somebody to help when you reach the point where you can't do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And emotionally, people don't do this because they're afraid of the stigma of mental health. And I'll come back to that bit in a little while because that's another thing I'm challenging. So the third part is, okay, you've got a flat tire. But now what's the root cause? Because if you stand there for the side of the road and pump your tire up, but it's got a big gash in it or that somebody's pulled the valve out or it's blown or, you know, whatever. unless you actually find out the root cause, there's not much point pumping it up again. Mm-hmm. So you have to know all three stages to resolve a problem. And that's where the book takes them through that entire strategy. And then throughout the book, there are exercises that, that gradually build up that thinking for yourself process so it literally the book literally teaches them to think for themselves for life and when you can do that that's what helps you to manage and regulate your emotional control and there will be times when life life is emotional it throws curveballs but it also helps people to recognize when you get stuck where to go and find help and that's the power of what I've put in here. And I'm just so excited to get that out there and get people reading it and saying, yes, you know, and we, we want people being wise in their 20s and 30s, not 50s and 60s. You know, we want to bring that time scale down. And, and all I wanted to do was save my son from killing himself. And it came to this. So, Boy, am I really glad that you did. I mean, first of all, because that was, you know, that's what you definitely want to do. But the fact that going through something that was so difficult and figuring out your own way to help him and to help you all in that with without being able to access a lot of services to help you um, is so amazing and just inspirational. And I'm just go you for doing that. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, my, I, I keep thinking, cause my, my family structure is a little crazy. I get into it in, in a lot of episodes, but long story short, both my parents were married to other people when I was born. So I have seven brothers and sisters, but I'm the only kid between my mom and my dad. And mm-hmm. I've, since the day I was born, I have had five parents in my life. I had my, my mother, her husband who became her ex-husband the woman that he married after they broke up, my biological dad, and the woman that he married after he got my mom pregnant. And all the people had kids and had all been divorced at least once before I was born. And so I I like come from all of these like broken and reformed relationships and and with all these step-siblings and half-siblings, but I don't have any 100% full siblings. And I grew up living in between three different houses every week and being in the middle of three different families. And I had all of these brothers and sisters who were not related to each other at all, but they were all related to me. And so I got to grow up in this really, really crazy, crazy way. And my oldest sister and my youngest brother are both adopted which is the weirdest, super weird. And um, my youngest brother was adopted at three years old 
from a family that used to beat the crap out of him. And he had a really, really rough first couple of years. And my biological dad and his wife had had a son and then she couldn't have any more children. So she wanted to have another baby. But my dad, by this point, because he'd had all these other marriages at this before that, he was like 50 years old. And he's like, I can't do a baby. <laughs> I can't do a baby again. So they <laughs> adopted my brother at three years old and compared with the way that their son had been raised, where he was like not in this crazy um, abusive situation. And then they get this three-year-old who doesn't like, he's never really known how to trust that anyone who's close to him is going to keep him safe. And that he doesn't really know. He doesn't know or trust when someone loves him and that they're not going to hurt him. And so his whole entire life, since I've known him, he's got this shield up like all the time, even as a, a little, little kid. And for my stepmother to have one son who is seemingly like very, very easy as far as the kid goes, my, my other younger brother, their, their natural son. Um, and he was just very kind of laid back and docile and agreeable in general as a person. And then they adopt this kid who is wild and has, you know, PTSD and lots of emotional behavior problems, physical health problems, all sorts of things. He developed cancer like a year and a half after they adopted him and had to have lots of surgery and cancer treatments and all sorts of stuff. And to have one kid that was like really easy and then adopt this kid into their family, that was so difficult. And he had such a hard time with like, you know, any emotional language or trusting anyone at all. And, you know, I think that if my stepmom had had your book, it would have been really great for her. It would have helped her out a lot um, as a parent, because I, I can't imagine, you know, if I had had one kid that was really easy and then all of a sudden have another kid that's like personally mm. tests you and does it on purpose every day and for years and years and years. And, you know, mm. It's wild. I mean, thinking my brother is now in his thirties and he's got his own son, my, my adopted brother. And like, he's, he's made it out of that craziness that he came from. And that's good. Excellent dad. And is like providing for his, his family. And then like seeing not only that for the most part, he's physically healthy, you know, it's like beat cancer as a little kid and, you know, made it to be an adult and that he's like, still, he's still affected by all those things that happened to him as a kid. Of course. Mm. And I can see it in, in it's just the way that he interacts with the world. He's very, he's still very guarded um, and mm. doesn't really trust that people are really going to be there for him. Um, and I don't know if there's anything that's ever going to be able to change that for him. Um, but I do know that like getting adopted into our family where, you know, he affected the family a whole lot, obviously. And it made us all kind of, think differently about how you just automatically mm-hmm. love somebody and that you can get that they love you and you have that safe feeling. And it, you know, it kind of opened our eyes to the, to the ways that a lot of other people's lives weren't as, as happy and nice as ours were, you know, and we, it didn't, you know, it's like when you finally become aware of your white privilege and you're like, Oh shit, I've been <laughs> seeing that all over. And I didn't realize it, you know, and it's like, it kind of, gave us, you know, an an outlook into our emotional privilege that we had of like being safe with each other for the most part. And so 
I, I just, I really wish that my stepmom had had your book in, in the 80s. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we can all say that, we, you know, we wish, we wish, but we can't go back and undo it. And the thing is, I, I learned as well because, you know, I was... This is a strange thing. I first started seeing my son's moods as colours when he was about five years old, but he was 19 before I developed this strategy. And then I'm thinking, oh, my God, why did I just not see this before? You know, I'd had the answers in my head all them years. Well, not in my head, but, you know, something was there in my head telling me there's something connected with colours and moods. And in a way, I could have seen it years earlier. But then I'm thinking, you know, when you think about everything that society has achieved over thousands of years and millions of years that humans have been on Earth, mm-hmm. why has nobody else ever done this either? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I can't beat myself up about it because, you know, I, I believe me, I would love to have had this book 15 years earlier, <laughs> but yeah. I had to write the damn book. I, <laughs> nobody handed it to me and said, oh, go and buy it on Amazon. I, if Amazon, Amazon didn't even exist I mean, when my kids were little. We didn't even have the internet. So it was, it was very hard to find out anything. Um, but yeah, I would love to have had this book years earlier. And all I could rely on was the occasional documentary on the one of the five channels we had on telly back then. <laughs> it was <laughs> not the hundreds we have now, plus all the internet and, you know, the, the whole world of digital books. Um, but I've learned I can't beat myself up about what, went wrong and I see you know know when you sometimes get that imposter syndrome and you think you know I'm now saying yes I'm an emotional awareness expert all about teenage emotions but my son was suicidal until he was 19 who am I to talk about it but I think actually no because I didn't give up and I came up with that resolution and there are a lot of parents out there and I my heart goes out to them and I really I really really feel the courage that they have to share about suicide awareness in hindsight and I think that is so sad they have to do that. And I'm quite unusual in I'm sharing suicide awareness, having saved my son from suicide, when a lot of parents are saying, oh, we didn't know or we didn't see the signs. And I'm like, actually, I knew the signs were there all along. I just didn't know how to stop him and I didn't know how to retrieve him from that. So I'm quite, I'm taking a sort of a slightly different angle on it to a lot of suicide awareness videos and, and speakers and books. And I know there's a lot of charities out there as well about it, that they do catch teenagers in depression um, from a charity point of view. But th- this is different. This, this you know, I, I've somehow created something a little bit unique. But, yeah, if I, you know, if I, what's the point in beating myself up about it? The point is I got there in the end. And now the book is there for other people to buy and take all those years of learning out of it and beating yourself up. And and it's not about saying what did I do wrong or what could I have done better? It's saying, what can we do better going forward? Mm-hmm. What can we learn <laughs> and change and grow from, you know, what, what can we do to open up that conversation? And that's one of the biggest things is this book is every section of the book has got a parent toolbox at the end. So it's written to, it's written as if I'm having a conversation across the dining table with another teenager, like me sharing stories and anecdotes with them and me saying to them, think about this, I reflect on that. What do you want from life? What, you know, how does this affect you? So it's like having that two way conversation of sharing wisdom and trying to understand their point of view. But at the end of each lesson, there is a parent toolbox that says, here's how to take that lesson and have that conversation with your teenager. So that if they're not in a position yet to read the book, 
you you work through it with them. So I've tried to take it exactly from the point of view that we dealt with and succeeded through those conversations. So, well, I, you know, my my biggest wish is that this just really, really changes lives. And anywhere around the world, I really do wish this changes lives. And I heard the story the other day. I was talking to somebody in, in a completely different continent. Again, I've been talking to people all around the world. And somebody said there was a child who, a teenager, who walked through the living room and the parents just didn't even say hi or acknowledge him. And he went out and hung himself from the balcony. And they said they didn't even know he was suicidal or, or feeling depressed. And what if they'd have just said hi to him or had a conversation with him? So imagine how they felt in hindsight. And I don't want parents to be there. But so many parents are saying, oh, yeah, no, no, my kids ain't got problems. How do you know? <laughs> are you absolutely 100% sure? Mm-hmm. And do you have those open conversations with them? So I don't want everybody to become paranoid. But I want everybody to really start to just see when you see the emotional cycle in the way I teach it in the book and you understand it, it teaches you about the language they use, about their body language, about their tone of voice. And it helps you to spot things that they don't even tell you so you can start to open that conversation. So if you see a teenager and they go, yeah, I'm fine, but their body language is telling you something different, when you understand it properly or facial expressions tell you something different, it can be very subtle things. Mm-hmm. You can start to open that up and, and not keep letting them go down that dark path. Yeah. Yeah, so when I get on a rent, I get on a rent. No, <laughs> I, I think it's wonderful. I mean, it's just there's been a lot of things um, about this conversation that just remind me of the way that my mother was. My mom passed away when I was 20 years old. And so so she, I, I knew when I was maybe 14, 15, that she was probably never going to meet my kids. And like, I just, I just knew that she was not a very healthy, uh, physically healthy person. And so, um, but like thinking back, I, I always wondered when I was around 14, 15, like someday when I'm going to have kids, what kind of things am I going to wish that I would have been able to ask her? And like, there's so many things I wish I could ask her about, about parenting. Um, and I've just been, my dad gave me all of these letters that she sent him when she took off while they were married before they had any kids. And she went and lived in California with another guy. And I didn't really, I didn't know the circumstances behind any of this, but he had saved all these letters that she wrote to him every day, almost every day. And I started reading them earlier in 2020. And I got this glimpse into who my mother was before she was a mother and like her internal dialogue of the ways that she was thinking and feeling about herself as a person and her own self-worth. And that she, she felt like she was never, going to be good at adulting enough to have anyone rely on her for anything. And that's part of why she like ran away from her life, I guess. Um, and it was, it was so eye opening for me to see where my mom was in her mindset before I was born, because I obviously only knew her after that. And I was like, how could this same person, like, yeah, she wasn't great at paying the bills and cleaning the house and putting away our summer clothes and all that. She didn't do that. She was not that kind of mom, not at all that kind of mom. Um, But because she was so good at explaining things and since she wasn't really good at adulting, she never forgot what it was like being a kid 
And so all the, while I was growing up, I mean, I lived with her Monday to Friday. I mean, almost all the time I was with, with her and my, my one older brother and just having her really know and remember what it was like to be young. And when I would ask her that she was always like a close, felt like a close friend instead of more of a parent. Like she wasn't good at like the quote unquote parenting discipline, like about all that stuff. Um, but I certainly wouldn't be who I am today and able to relate to people in the ways that I can. And to, like you were saying, recognize somebody's how they feel, even if they don't say that's how they feel. I mean, like she kind of instilled in me that, that empathy of being able to, to be an empath and like feel somebody else's emotions, even when they're not in the same room as you, like I can, I'm connected to, you know, there's certain people too, that are kind of in your, I don't know, soul family. It's part of my like weird shit woo woo thing. But I mean, like I, like people who, whose energy has been related to yours or you've been in their family before you were in this body and you were in some other life and that energy was making something else live. Like those, you can kind of tell like those certain situations when people who have that shared, you know, posted. Yeah. When you posted in the group last week, I could feel your energy through that. And I was like, yes, we need to talk. Yeah. You read some and go, no, not for me, not for me. It's like reading like reading the personal. It's not for me. No. Yes, I need to be on that lady's podcast. Message yeah. straight away. <laughs> and it's, it's that kind of thing that like, I think it really draws people together. And my mom was so good at seeing that in other people and recognizing that in other people and I mean, at, at, there were 300 people at her memorial service on a Thursday at two in the afternoon. Three, it was like standing room only in this giant church. Um, and, you know, was, was she super financially successful? Did she like follow all her dreams and get all her stuff? Oh, no. But did she affect the world? Hell yeah, she did. And like having her in my life has given me this ability to kind of be that person for people who didn't have somebody like that in their life. And so that's kind of what, partly why I want to do this show is to like share that love for, for affecting people uh, in some way. And I get that. Cause I, I do my own and I do mine on a Tuesday night live at seven on Facebook. So I, I just do it straight. I don't pre-record it. I don't edit it. You just get what you get. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the first 13 nights I was doing it directly through Facebook live. So it came with a good 10 to 15 minutes of technical difficulties at the start of everyone, but somehow some people were still watching it until I discovered a way of doing it through a different platform. Um, so anyway, <laughs> That was because, and, and again, this is coming on a different level after my, you know, all my family have grown up, left home. I've got grandchildren. Um, my husband and I, we moved out last year after 28 years of marriage. I'd lost my job. We had to sell the house. So I had to start life from scratch last July. So it was a stressful year for me. And then I was training for a new job, which ended up actually put me in a state of PTSD. It, the, the training was for something that was way beyond what the job description had said. And I came away saying, I cannot do that job. And so I left. And the very first, like I finished the job on the Friday night in November. And the Saturday, we were in lockdown, lockdown two. And by now, I'd then moved into my little flat because I'd had to spend a bit of time at my parents in between. I'd had nowhere to live. So I went to my parents. Um, believe me, you were in about age in 20s, 30s, 40s. When you're in your 50s, moving back to your parents is not exactly on the top of your bucket list. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> quite challenging. 
but we we got through it. So anyway, I moved in my little flat, and literally the first day that I'm then at home, like now I'm going to be at home permanent, you know, all the time because I'm going to write my book and start my business. But it was like literally I'm going to be in lockdown for 28 days at the time they were saying not being able to see anybody for 28 days. And I've always been a really sociable person. And I'm like, what the hell am I going to do for 28 days on my own? And I, I, I that just that thought alone was panicking me. I've never been alone. I've been married for 28 years. I was always with family before that. I've always had my kids at home or around me. Mm-hmm. You know, if my husband was away working, I'd just go and see the kids. So this just sheer thought of being alone was was frightening. And I thought, you know what? I can talk. <laughs> and that is <clears throat> one thing I do a lot of. I'm very much like you. This is brilliant. I can talk. Mm-hmm. The socks off a donkey sort of thing. And <laughs> it's just, I, I can talk. And I've got Facebook. So I decided to use the 28 days to do a live talk for an hour every night with a guest, like we're doing now, about mental health and emotional awareness. And it just all began from there. So, my, But after the 28 days, I've got so many people wanting to still speak. I now do one a week. So I've kept it going. I'm about 20 weeks into that now. Um, but yeah, I absolutely love it. Just get on. And it amazes me. Some people I've known for years and I get on and we just bring up some really great conversations that around the topic mm-hmm. other people it's like I don't know them like today speaking to you we've never spoken before mm-hmm. but it's fascinating how we can get on and have such a powerful conversation about something and be in so much alignment and you said earlier on about there being patterns in those conversations and that's what I love it's almost like another form of study week on week on week in seeing how those patterns come out mm-hmm. and there's a bit of the brain called reticular activating system I don't know if you know about that bit and it's the part where you don't notice things because, you, you know, you've got so many millions of bits of information coming at you all the time that you filter life out and you just see what you need to see. So if you're driving out on the road, you tend to just know there is traffic, lots and lots of traffic. But if you've just bought a nice new red shiny car in your favorite brand and you go driving down the road and you see hundreds of cars coming the other way and then there's a car identical to yours you will see it because your reticular activating system will then not filter that bit out because that's relevant information to you mm-hmm. and so that was almost the same thing it's like we're using in these seeing these patterns week on week was where I said how can I teach my son to understand his emotions when he can't see them and it was like when you ask the question your reticular activating system starts looking for the answers. Mm-hmm. So instead of being a parent who sat there and said, I don't know what to do, I give up. I was the parent that says, I don't know what to do. How can I do it? And I asked myself, how can I help him? And you're quite specific about the question and you will start to find the answers. So it's really powerful. How we, like you say, having these conversations and so much comes out week on week. I love it. I love it too. I love it too. I mean, it's, it's such a similar reason for why I, I started my podcast. I mean, I, I've been living with my husband and my two kids. Uh, so I wasn't totally alone for our lockdown. Um, and the lockdown that we had here in New York wasn't as strict. It wasn't like you can't leave your house at all. It was just like nothing was open. Um, except for the grocery store and things like that. Um, so, but my husband is very introverted and, you know, he gets his energy from being able to get away and be by himself. And obviously I am an extrovert and I 
having interactions and conversations with new people, especially new people or people I haven't seen in a long time and like reconnecting with people and sharing that energy. Like I need that or I am squirrely as fuck and I'm not a nice person to be around. Like I, I, I take with so much from the people that are around me that um, I think it goes with that like emotional hyperactivity that I am intense and I need a lot of energy from other people. And if I'm only with my introverted husband, I take so much more than he has to give. And it's just not fair for him. So the whole pandemic and when everything was shut down and I couldn't go out and see my friends and go to I, I used to do pre pandemic. I did a lot of in-person business networking events with other women and I would go do those like several times a month and like have those you know, intentional interactions with people. And, um, I was literally like starving for it. And as a poet and a musician and performer pre COVID, I was also doing a lot of poetry shows and we play in a band and the band was playing shows and things like that. So I also haven't had that outlet either where it's like, I have all of this to give and people want it and they take it. Um, and so not having that, it like, kind of builds up in me is like my crazy hyperactivity. And the more that I don't let that out somewhere and get, you know, new, new, good, positive energy back in, um, it makes it insane. So I was like, how can I deal with this where I need to need other people? I need them. Um, and he's like, I've had too much. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to start, I've always wanted to have a podcast for like years. And I kept, you know, as as a perfectionist, I kept thinking of all these reasons why I wasn't ready to do it, or I didn't have the right equipment, or it wasn't soundproof, or blah, 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 blah. And then the pandemic, and everyone was like, no one cares if there's a dog barking. No one cares if there's a kid that shows up, or there's a fire truck, or whatever, because that's everybody's daily life is like interacting like this. So yeah, um, it just gave me this this wonderful outlet to be able to say like, okay, forget the perfectness done is better than perfect. I'm just going to do this. And even if the recordings don't show up right and the audio isn't great, I don't care because I'm going to share conversations anyway. And it makes it so that I intentionally book time on my calendar to have face to face as close as we can get conversations with people who are really interesting to me. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, yeah, I get to do this. And every single week, it's just, it's just a joy mm. treasure. Um, and oh, I can, I, every week I'm like, oh, it's only going to be an hour. And then like, we talk way longer than an hour. Um, but I don't want to poke out your time all day long. That's um, fine. It's whatever you need. Um, and the, <laughs> just and deter I'm, me from going comfort eating in the kitchen for as long as possible. <laughs> exactly. Um, so at the end of all of the shows, I asked everyone the same five questions. Um, but I just want to give another little shout out about, uh, about your book. We're going to put the links in the show notes and stuff like that. But for everyone who has been listening, if you don't remember the title, her book is called brain unchained by Kay Reeve. I'm going to actually buy a bunch of copies of this book and do a giveaway on my Instagram slash Facebook pages. Um, because I think that this book is really important and I know that, in the middle of this crazy pandemic. I mean, as a parent myself and knowing so many other parents who are trying to figure out like, is, oh, is us beautiful. keeping kids home and keeping them physically safe. The thing that's going to make them fucked up emotionally as an adult, you know, like <laughs> which one is worse, which one is worse. Like, you know, um, and just yeah. constantly having that battle of like, is, you know, is my kid learning enough in school? Or can I just say, fuck it. And they'll be, they'll be fine and they'll survive. And you know, like how long is this, 
going to go on and all this, you know, there's a yeah. lot of parents that are like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I actually so. have a, a quote and it's a quote that I came up with through developing the strategies in here. And it is mastering life is all about mastering change. And if there's one thing that's really thrown us deep into that is the pandemic. Everybody has really, like you said, grasp the fact that when all of a sudden you've got to be at home and not in a recording studio who cares if it's a dog barking or a car revving past people are getting used to just accepting the status quo not being such perfectionists but yeah absolutely mastering life is all about mastering change and that was the strategy that I taught my son and and but wow you, you're amazing and thank you so much for having me today on on the show this is lovely Beautiful. okay so now it's five question time five questions. <gasps> Okay. Question number one, tell me about an experience in your life that shaped who you are today. Like that one moment where (laughs) after that, everything was totally different. I think that was having my son, to be honest. Um, There's way too many to pick from otherwise. Um, But like I said, when he was eight, he was diagnosed with Asperger's. But I think I realized the strength of my intuition and it always drove me because the first time I'd ever said to my mum, it's almost as if he's autistic. And I had no, at the time, I had no idea about Asperger's. I saw autism as sort of just a one end of the spectrum and I didn't know about the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd not, you know, not grown up with the internet and, and as much open knowledge. And we lived out in the middle of the countryside with about 13 houses. So it wasn't like I lived in a big city surrounded by people with all kinds of personality traits and characters so I said to my mum it's almost as if he's autistic he was 10 weeks old but he wasn't diagnosed until he was eight and I hadn't known anything about it so that made me realize how strong my intuition was and I never let go of that and that's that shaped who I am that's awesome it's 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 wild after I had my first son he was in the NICU at the hospital for the first three days that he was alive and luckily he got to come home with us and we, I didn't have to go home without him. And, you know, like, my goodness, I don't know if I could have handled that. Um, but the whole time that he was in the NICU, all of the nurses there kept saying, he looks right at you. Like he, he looks at you in your eyes and he's only like a day old. And they were like, we work with little babies every day and they don't do that. Like he has been here before like they could tell that he had this energy that like he just was observing everything and just he he knew things about the world that he shouldn't like there was no way that he would be able to like know you like that and so it's it's same thing as like I, I got this intuition about him like right after he was born that, that he knew so much more about life than I did in a lot of ways that he is had been here before it's really interesting yeah Mine was the opposite when my son didn't make eye contact. So that was quite difficult having a child where you want to bond with them and you're feeding them and you're cuddling them. But for about six to eight weeks, I just couldn't even look into his eyes at all. Just looked anywhere else except at me. So that was quite difficult being a new mum. And I ended up with postnatal depression um, sort of on the back of having him because I just couldn't get that bonding with him. Um, Obviously, now it's completely different. Very strong bond now. (laughs) Um, It's always there. It's always there. You just got to learn to recognize it in different ways. Different ways. (laughs) Uh, okay, number two, when you feel defeated or overcome, what do you tell yourself to keep going? If I'm not being positive, the only other choice is being negative. And I don't want to be negative. <laughs> That's 
there are only two ends on a battery. There's a positive and a negative end. And if you if you're not purposely choosing to be positive, you will be negative. That's what I tell myself. Okay. That's a really good outlook. I love that. Okay. <laughs> Number three, tell me about a way you overcame a failure or a mistake and what you learned from it. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's actually part of a, a short story in the book. Quite an interesting one. <clears throat> Took a trip down to uh, further south in UK to visit my grandmother with a boyfriend, not, not my husband, but somebody before that. A long, long, So we're talking about 30 years ago. And this is before the days of sat-nav and everything. We just had paper maps. And driving down there, it was like, follow this road, follow that road. At the end of the motorway, turn left, and the next one turned left, and it was pretty much where I wanted to go. And that's like a two-and-a-half-hour journey. So just it was like pretty straight roads, but easy. Coming back, what was the end of one road, turning off onto another motorway? Coming back the other way, I had to find a turning in the middle of the motorway, and I missed it. I don't mean in the central reservation, but it was like you didn't get to the end of the road and turn. You had to find this exit and I missed it. So we ended up getting lost. And and, and instead of coming back up to Norfolk, we ended up going into London. <laughs> and it was at that point that the person who was sitting beside me, the boyfriend at that time, then declared that he can't read a map when he was meant to be my map reader. And... Um, so I learned one thing is to, to about having more open communication about teamwork before you begin a journey. <laughs> um, and lots of things I learned about that and about the power of being lost. And the biggest thing I learned from that was and because because we got diverted into London and it took a long time for us to stop and find somewhere to park so that I could then get hold of the map and try and say, right, where are we? And this was the important part about recognising when you are lost. And it te- taught me about recognising when you're lost emotionally as well. Because when you are lost, until you can actually find your bearings, you can't plot your way back home. And it's exactly the same emotionally. Do you actually know you are lost? Because until you do, you're going to keep going in the wrong direction. And even when you realise you're going in the wrong direction, how do you find your bearings? And it's important to recognise that you are lost and where you are before you can plot your way back. So that was my lesson from getting lost in London. There we go. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's funny because I, I actually have a really horrible sense of direction and I, I don't like need my GPS in order to drive around like the city I've lived in my entire life. It's not a huge city either. Um, and I, I typically like, I get lost a lot. Um, and it, it was just really funny thinking about like how typically when women are lost, they stop and ask for directions so much quicker than men usually do, you know, to put that stereotype out there. I'm doing it. I'm putting that stereotype out there. Um, but it's funny because women, because we stop and ask for directions, typically get back in the right direction a whole lot faster than you do if you keep driving in the wrong direction because you're too proud to stop and ask anyone for help. Um, Absolutely. And I think that that also translates to emotional, yeah. you know, emotional mismap reading or, you know, like emotional yeah. being lost emotionally. Um, because I think typically women do seek out help even if it's not professional help, but they ask, typically women will ask other women, like, is this weird? Is this normal? Blah, blah, blah. And like a lot of, a lot of women feel like they, they need to talk through things with somebody else 
um, in order to figure out like, am I crazy? Does this make sense or whatever to get back to where they're not feeling lost. And because there is that like male macho prod, I can't get lost. I have to be the leader, whatever that a lot of men won't ask for help or don't recognize an emotional yeah. sat nav, and it's here in the book. The emotional sat nav. Yeah. That was an, that was an alternative title, but we went with brain unchained, and that's just an important point. The title um, was actually chosen by my son in the end to represent how that felt for him, because we talk about light at the end of the tunnel. Because that was the other thing going into London, I had to go through the tunnels. Oh my God, <laughs> that's where I ended up getting stuck in the wrong lane and couldn't change the traffic. Um, but anyway, we talk about being stuck in a rut one end and, and light at the end of the tunnel the other end. Nobody gives these teenagers just the map of the tunnel tell them how to get through the tunnel then you just tell them there's light at the other end but if they can't see it how do they know they're going in the right direction so that was where I said to my son at that point where you started to realize you were coming through that tunnel and starting to find your own way in life how did it feel and that's where he said it felt like I'd got all these chains around my brain and like they were finally starting to fall away and I felt free so that's where the title brain unchained come from that was his 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 description bless him I love that I love that okay number four what one trait or habit is most responsible for keeping you on track being stubborn So I said that is a family trait. Um, I actually have uh, the, the brother of a third great grandfather who obviously I've never met. He lived in the 1800s, uh, 1820s to uh, 80s, I think. So he was around for nearly 60 years. But he was a steamship captain and he used to travel from Liverpool in the UK across to um, New York. So he he would have been, I've never been to America, but this ancestor of mine 150 years ago, whatever, had been there like every other, every few weeks. Um, it just seems strange to think of now. So he was a very famous steamship captain in his day called the Millionaire's Captain. And I've got a huge folder behind me over here with researchers, another book I want to write. And he'd got a fascinating history at sea. But whenever I read about him, um, the personality that comes through, like we were saying earlier about empathy, being an empath, you can read the energy from somebody's personality. And that's the bit where I still see those personality traits in the family today about that stubborn streak or being what some people call it aloof or professional, depending on how we apply it. But we're all the same. So some of us are stubborn, some are aloof, some, some are determined. <laughs> but it's all that same personality trait, depending on how we apply it to situations. But that's what's kept me going is, is learning to use that the right way. And and just just to be persistent, not give up. And I think that translates to just don't give up. <laughs> Never yeah. ever ever give up. Mm-hmm. Don't give That's up. Hope. You. When's your birthday? Oh, mine July. <laughs> oh, I was curious because I'm a Taurus, so we're like notoriously stubborn too. Um, oh, oh, I like the play on words there. Notoriously. <laughs> <laughs> notoriously. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Uh, okay. <laughs> The number five, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? And what advice would you give to other people? Best piece of advice I've ever been given. Oh, my word, so much. I I think there have been a lot of managers who've recommended uh, books or supported me through a a particular job that I had. Um, And... One piece of advice I was given was to read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And there was 
one chapter in those seven habits was about understand before being understood. And that to me is the one that's helped me build my empathic skills the most to be able to help my son through. And it was also the one that helped him as well, because being on the autistic spectrum, trying to understand other people's emotions was very difficult. But by teaching him the skill of understanding other people, it also helped him to manage his emotions as well, which in turn took a lot of stress off of me as a mum, as well as helping me with my personal career. So understand before being stood, that had got to be the best one I've ever had. Love it. I love it. Okay, so that's the last question. Man, this is a great show. I'm glad that I got to open my day with having this conversation because um, recording this podcast tends to like put me on a good a, a good high tra- high vibe trajectory if we're going to go woo woo for it um, for the rest of my day. So thank you so much for being on the show. Okay, can you tell everyone where they can find you online? Absolutely. Yes, it's akreeve.co.uk. And everything on there is for the books. Um, there's masterclasses linked through on there and also contact form if anybody wants one-to-one support. Obviously, that's um, there's different price levels for each. Um, but all the links to the book are on there, whether it's Kindle, Colour or black and white paperback. Because um, the most thing, the, the black and white version is a lot cheaper than the colour. Um, that is why there is a diagram on the back colour because obviously the cover's colour. So it's, it's all there, everything you need, but it's, available in 13 different countries and all of those links are on the website that's awesome awesome. so we're gonna we're gonna get a couple copies of Kay's book and get it do those as a giveaway um craft miracles and reach the stars podcast instagram and facebook pages um so keep an eye out for that and um we hope that you get this book and that it helps somebody navigate through the tunnel Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Kay. Um, You all been hanging out with us on the Reach the Stars podcast. I have been your host, John Willoughby Lore. If you love this show, make sure you go give us a little thumbs up on the YouTube and subscribe to the channel on there. Um, Do a little review and a rating on iTunes because that helps us show the podcast to people who will never normally see it. Um, And if you really want to get on board and you really love the mission um, of this podcast to inspire change throughout the world in positive ways, then you can hop on our Patreon. Patreon, become a patron um, and get some fun extra goodies in there, bloopers and outtakes. And um, we're working on getting some swag and some merch over there too. So thanks so much for being here and uh, we'll see you next week on the Reach the Stars podcast. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. A single interaction has the power to change your life forever. This is a place for the stories of those moments, stories of pursuing dreams, overcoming tragedy and failure, coming back to life after so much of what feels like dying, of continuing on with only a vision as a map. This is the place where those moments live on. Come sit by the fire, look up at the stars, and be forever changed too. Thank you for being with us on the Reach the Stars podcast. Our theme music is generously provided by Byrocratic. You can find him on bandcamp.com. Thank you to all of our current patrons, guests, and everyone else who helps make this dream a reality. We are so proud to be building this amazing community with all of you. If you love this podcast, please consider sharing with a friend, leaving a review on iTunes, and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash reach the stars. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the videos of these conversations. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, do something cool and tell us about it.